Hello and welcome to Glasgow City Heritage Trust podcast, If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a new series about the relationships, stories and shared memories that exist between Glasgow's historic buildings and people. Hello everyone, I'm Neil Murphy and welcome to If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. In this episode, we'll be talking about Glasgow's difficult history of demolition and urban renewal in the second half of the 20th century and how it affected the lives of Glaswegians. After the Second World War, for a variety of reasons, many of the houses built during the Georgian, Victorian and Edwardian periods were considered a housing problem due to the high density of population, poor sanitation and structural deficiencies which characterised them. The living conditions experienced at the time would be unthinkable in modern Scotland, such as overcrowding and inadequate water and sewage facilities. Residents often lived by four, six or even eight to a room and 30 to a toilet or 40 to a tap. The most common solution adopted to solve Glasgow's housing crisis in the second half of the 20th century was the Comprehensive Development Area. 27 such areas covering roughly 40% of the city were established in Glasgow, with the aim being to sweep away the old tenements and rehouse some of the population while encouraging others to leave. Communities were either moved into modernist high-rise blocks or the peripheral schemes of Easterhouse, Drumchapel, Castlemonk and Pollock, famously described by Billy Connolly as deserts with windies or decanted to new towns near Glasgow or elsewhere in Scotland, such as East Kilbride, Cumbernauld, Irvine and Glenrothes. In the 1960s, the city centre demolitions were increased by the building of the Inner Ring Road, now the M8. This new motorway cut through areas like Tanhead and Charing Cross, isolating the city centre. In the same period, Glasgow's first high-rise flats were built, such as Crathidarth and Partick, from 1946 to 1954, Moss Heights and Cardonald from 1950 to 1954, and the iconic Red Road flats from 1962 to 1970s, which were the highest flats in Europe until they were demolished in 2015. In later years, due to a change of political, social and economic climate, the effect of the demolitions of entire neighbourhoods became clearer, and there was a new awareness of the loss of the community spirit that evaporated with the demolition of the tenements. Today we have two great guests to discuss the architectural, structural and social transformations Glasgow went through and what they meant for the communities who were affected by the changes. So my first guest is Reverend Dr John Harvey, retired Minister of the Church of Scotland. From 1963 to 1971, John and his wife Ruth Harvey lived in the Gorbals as members of the Gorbals Group Ministry, an experiment in street-level ministry based in the heart of the Gorbals community, which at that time was characterised by overcrowded and poorly maintained tenements and very minimal social facilities. The purpose of the group was to live in what had become a decaying inner city slum, sharing as far as possible the lives of their neighbours, responding to local needs and making available the skills and training they had for the service of the whole community. The Gorbals is one of the oldest areas of Glasgow and is located on the south bank of the River Clyde. Originally built as one of Glasgow's Georgian Newtowns, by the late 19th century it had been overwhelmed by people moving to the Big Smoke in search of work in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. At its peak during the 1930s, the wider Gorbals district had a population of an estimated 90,000 residents, reaching an astonishing population density of around 4,000 people per square kilometre, the highest population density in Northern Europe. 
During this time, the Gorbals became synonymous with violence, squalid living conditions and gang fights, all famously recounted in the novel No Mean City. The area later became well known for its unfortunate saga of cyclical demolition and redevelopment, first in the 1960s and 70s with a series of tower blocks and deck access schemes, including the now notorious Hutchison Town Sea Towers. Designed by Sir Basil Spence as a ship in full sail, with the laundry fluttering the breeze on the balconies, and known as Queen Elizabeth Square, the 20-storey towers were built between 1960 and 1966, but such were the problems with dampness, they were explosively demolished with tragic results in 1993. Regenerated once more from the mid-1990s onwards and now known as the New Gobles and New Lauriston, the area has resumed a more traditional urban pattern of new-built tenements and townhouses. However, the neighbourhood continues to live on in the collective memory almost as a mythical place, rich in community spirit and with its own legends and characters, such as the flyweight boxer Benny Lynch and the weird and wonderful Gobles vampire running away with children in the southern Acropolis. So, John... Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, John. So first up, how would you describe living in the Gobles in the late 1960s? And where did you live? And is the tenement still there? Well, first of all, can I just make a wee correction? My wife's name is Molly, not Ruth. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Ruth is my daughter. and uh, Ah, right. My apologies. However, no problem. Going to back to your question, Neil, uh, it was a huge culture shock to me to go from Pollock Shields in Glasgow to live in Gorbals because for most of my youth and early adulthood, I'd been told that Gorbals had disappeared. And of course, the, as you've pointed out very clearly, that's far from the case. There was a report done in 1965, I think, by Christian Action Housing, which described it as one of the worst slums in Europe. And uh, for me, it was, it, was, it, was, it was quite scary, to be honest. I'd never come across the overcrowding and the, the disarray of people's lives that resulted from that situation. The tenement we went to live in is long gone. It all went with, with all the rest of the place in the 1970s. But, you know, it, it had been a grand old tenement in a lovely broad thoroughfare with colonnaded pillars outside the front and um, spacious rooms. We lived in one of the flats there. This was Abbotsford Place? This is Abbotsford Place. Um, we lived in one of the flats and um, above us lived a, a lovely chap, quite an elderly man, who was from Ireland and who came to see me every year to get me to sign a form, me, a Church of Scotland minister, to um, assure the Irish government that he was still alive so he could get his pension for having fought with the old IRA. <laughs> uh, below me was a lovely family of people who had been there for a long time. He was a taxi driver, and we got to know them quite well. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a strange experience. Our neighbours were amazing people. Uh, courageous, resilient and resourceful as you had to be to live in such appalling conditions with no facilities and every sense of being abandoned, totally abandoned by the local authority who simply said, Gorbals is going. 
and therefore we're not going to do much about it at the moment. It was appalling. Yes, yeah. It's it's a very similar experience to what happened in the United States and in various um, cities in the United States where entire areas were, were redlined. And that those tended to be social segregation. Those tended to be the, the, the African-American areas. Yeah. And the redlining meant that they couldn't get mortgages, so they couldn't do anything in those areas. And it's, it's incredible how that, I mean, um, you know, there were delegations from Glasgow which went to, um, you know, the various cities in the United States, including Pittsburgh. And when you kind of look at those parallels, it's, it's very interesting to see they took those lessons and then started to apply them here. So can you tell us more about the, the Global's Group Ministry? And, and what your mission was. Just quickly before before I do that, when we got married, we went up to town to try and buy a washing machine. Mm-hmm. And we were told not to tell the people that we lived in Gorbals. Because if we said we lived in Gorbals, they wouldn't give us credit. It was that sort of situation where it was just a bad, bad word. But to come back to your question, Neil, about the Gorbals group, mm-hmm. I mean, this, interestingly enough, grew out of one of these areas you mentioned in America, in New York, um, mm-hmm. an, an area called East Harlem, where there was a big area, a big community of Puerto Rican residents. And a few young ministers after the Second World War had gone to live there in order to see if they could connect with these people in a way that the traditional church organizations of the time just didn't connect. And that's what the Gorbals Group Ministry was doing in Gorbals, trying to connect with people for whom the church, as one woman put it to me, is just not for the likes of us. You know, we don't have um, the clothes, the money, the the accent, the language, um, and not only that, but we're not up and about at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning when they all gather. And we would just feel totally um, out of our out of our depth. So there was no connection between our neighbours who lived there and the traditional churches, apart from the Catholic Church, I have to say, because the Catholic Church, people went there for Mass, um, but that was about it. There was nothing else that happened. So we, in the Gorbals group, it was a small group of us. I mean, there was only about a dozen at the most. We all lived in the area in different flats. We shared our money and we chose to live at the level, the the, the income level of our neighbours, which was national assistance in those days. And this meant that the money that we made from our jobs, and we all had reasonable jobs, um, we pooled and that enabled us to do things like run youth clubs and playgroups and take children on holiday and work with the families as they fought to fought for their human rights in the face of this appalling uh, these appalling conditions we were there alongside them we didn't imagine or pretend to be um, local people we weren't we were incomers we could leave whenever we wanted our neighbors couldn't they were there for life and they had to just get on with it and as i said before we were in awe of the courage and the resourcefulness and the good humor uh, of these folk who, who really just um, were an inspiration to live with, total inspiration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did, did, did you feel that you succeeded in connecting with them? 
Yes, um, at the level of our of being neighbors. Um, but of course we did because we were there. We we shared the same the same conditions, the same ups, the same downs. What we didn't succeed in doing was what we had originally intended to try and do, which was to set up little street front churches, small groups of people worshiping together. That didn't happen. Um, there's a whole variety of possible reasons for that. Something to do with our personalities, something to do with the sheer uh, intensity of the need to deal with the social and um, environmental demands on us, which were so huge on all of us that we just had to keep on working at them. So as I say, we ran youth clubs, we took folk on holiday, we represented them in the courts. For a wee while, I ran a local newspaper, which was a job for which I was completely and totally unqualified. Um, and if we hadn't <laughs> had the money behind us that we saved, it would have gone bust. Uh, in about two months, but we tried. It was an attempt to give a voice to the people to say, "Look, we are here. We are still here. We are human beings. We have views. We have we have needs. We want we want to be heard." Hmm. How how do you think the demolition of the entire area affected the community? Well, it was top down. Of course, it was from the top. They were, we were told what was going to happen. There was a couple of consultations, as I remember it, but they weren't real consultations. They were just telling us what was going to happen. Basically, what happened was that the community just disintegrated. Um, as, as you've said, it was a very strong community, as all these places were. But we were just rehoused all over the place. In, in, our, in our tenement, we a few... Uh, all of us got together and we, uh, we petitioned the council or the local corporation as it then was if we could be rehoused in the same area together. But we got nothing out of that. Uh, so we were scattered about the, the place, about mainly these peripheral schemes you mentioned, mainly in the south side, Pollock and Castlemilk. But uh, it, was a dis it was a very disheartening experience. We, we called it the 20th century clearances, because it felt like that. Yes, yeah, it was basically. Um, and we, we, I remember having a very strong argument with some of the local authority people about the new high flats they were proposing to build. And we said to them, these are streets put an end. They're streets which were hmm. horizontal, being turned vertical. So you should put into the flats the facilities which streets had. Street corner, meeting places, yes. community halls, pubs, yeah. shops, yes. nothing like that. It was just houses piled on houses, piled on houses. And, well, we all know what happened to them. Absolutely. We, we watched them being built, and I went away and, and filmed them being blown up 30, 40 years yeah. later. Yeah incredible waste of money i mean I've, I've i've spoken to you about this before in the past and how you know, i was brought up in hong kong and how the british administration in hong kong was having to deal with the kind of the immense population increase with all of the refugees coming in from from china mm -hmm. and was taking lessons from places like glasgow and was applying them there to kind of the next generation of tower blocks 
but was putting all of those facilities in. And yet it, we got it so wrong here. Mm. And I remember coming to Glasgow in the 1980s and seeing the... The, the 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 four tower blocks in and in, in Lauriston, Norfolk Place, Stirling Fall Place, and being completely shocked that mm. they were just like these huge slabs that mm. were in the middle of effectively wasteland, yeah. and that there were no kind of amenities for people there, and no, you just no. think that that was such a such a huge mistake. I mean, was there anything positive that came out of this? Well, I mean, people who folk who went to live in them spoke about the lovely views. Because you could see for miles across right. the city, um, they liked the internal bathrooms, because many folk came from houses mm-hmm. yes. in the Gobbles that yeah, didn't, didn't have, have that. anything. Um, so there was there, there were positives there, but um, I think they were they were small beer really compared to the the the, the, ne- the negatives of being forced to live in that sort of way, with lifts which eventually broke down or were very dirty. And uh, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth Square, um, basically they felt like like prisons because it were just long mm-hmm. corridors with identical doors. They were called Block A, Block B, and Block C, rather unimaginatively. And people christened them Alcatraz, Barlini, and Sing Sing, <laughs> the names of the three most well-known prisons. Which is kind of sad, really. It is, it is. I mean, because they they when, when, when they were opened by the Duke of Edinburgh, it was described as Gorbals is a phoenix rising from the ashes. Well, I'm afraid the phoenix didn't live long. No, no, it certainly doesn't. It's one of these things that, I mean, tr- you know, having trained as an architect, when I look at an image of them, they look like fantastic pieces of sculpture, and enormous pieces of sculpture. Mm. But, you know, a work of art, a piece of sculpture, that is not necessarily the same thing as somewhere that you would be good or, or conducive for living in and that's would, right. you know, encourage kind of communities to kind of arise. And I think that's kind of where, where Spence made his mistake. Um, that these huge kind of windswept plazas, they're just, they're not conducive to actual, you know, conditions to encourage human life and living so and i think that 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 was the that was the problem with them so uh, going back to the kind of the the sense of community in the gobbles do you think it was stronger or different from other areas in glasgow probably not particularly different from the likes of you know partick or bridgeton or mary hill Mm -hmm. or these other areas of so-called multiple deprivation um, the one thing I think that is quite noticeable about Gorbals is Gorbals was always an immigrant community. In the 19th mm-hmm. century, the folk from the Highlands came, and then the Irish came to work. Uh, it mm-hmm. was a big Jewish community. When we went to live there in 1963, there were only a few Jewish families left, but it had once been a very thriving Jewish community. Um, yes, and then yeah, laterally absolutely. there were... Um, folk from the Asian subcontinent coming in. So it was always a place where you had this coming and going of a great, diverse and wonderfully rich human grouping coming in and going out again, which made a difference, gave it a kind of life and a vibrancy, which, I mean, I certainly came to appreciate very much indeed, which possibly wasn't the same, I don't know, maybe not quite the same in some of the other areas of Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? It's, I mean, it really is quite, I mean, 
to me, another thing that kind of struck, sort of horrified me slightly was the realization. This wasn't, I didn't realize this until much later on when I'd finally caught sight of an image on the virtual Mitchell, um, that that was where Glasgow's main synagogue was. And there was this huge Jewish school next door to it as well. Yeah. And all that was, was bulldozed in the 1970s. And I was horrified by that because I'd, I'd lived in Berlin for a while and had seen the reconstruction of the synagogue there. And yeah. you're thinking, why on earth would anyone want to yeah. bulldoze their main synagogue? You, that would be something surely you'd be treating with the utmost respect. And It was just down the very, road from us. Very odd. It was just down the road from us in South Portland Street. And... Um, when we arrived, it, had, it was hardly used at all in the synagogue. Um, there was bingo was played in it as well. And um, we, we knew the bingo caller, who was one of the last Jewish families in the Gorbals. It was a lovely building. Um, one of the good buildings that has survived is the library. Mm -hmm. The Gorbals library is still there. Yeah, which is, again, just over the way from... From the from the synagogue, yes, it's just on the other side of the road. But apart from that, and one or two pubs, nothing else. Yes, I know. Um, yes, yeah. There's the one tenement that still survives. So the the British Linen Bank, which has all now been refurbished, and then there's the Bed Bedford Theatre, and then you've still got, I suppose, the the what survives of the citizens, the you know the main kind of theatre box. But beyond that, you know, there's nothing else except, you know, once you go beyond um, Norfolk Street. Abbotsford Primary School. Absolutely. Just to the south. Yeah. Which is a very beautiful building. Our daughter went there. When I walk past that now, I'm trying to imagine what that view to the north, because you must have been able to see the Portland Street suspension bridge at the mm -hmm. end of all of that. Mm -hmm. It must have been this really incredible kind of urban access yeah. through the southern part of the city, yeah. all completely vanished Absolutely. nowadays. Absolutely, totally gone. So it it's, makes you realize um, you know, how different Glasgow and, and Glaswegians are um, nowadays for, you know, as a consequence of, 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 of what happened. Do, do, do you think that kind of change was, was it for the better or was it for the worse that areas like that have disappeared? Well... In one sense, of course, it was for the better because they just were unsustainable. They had to go. Hmm. But as we've said, you know, on the other hand, it was so sad to to see the whole sense of com the whole community disappear, and with hmm. it, possibly, the sense of let's get together and do something. I mean, there was a sense of urgency, a sense of um, determination to beat this situation. Just before the demolition, a few of us set up street action groups, which were local people mm -hmm. committed to looking out for the, the needs of their street, um, the potholes, the, the, the broken glass, the, the shut shops, the, 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 the damaged sub infrastructure, and bring this to the attention of the council. Um, and on one occasion, I remember mm -hmm. we all went up to the city chambers to really try and, and, and get something done and got into big trouble with the local councillor who said that was his job. And of course, our answer was, well, you're not doing it. Uh, so we're going to try and do it. What are you doing? Uh, exactly. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So is there anything about, about that kind of past of Glasgow that, that you're missing. Is there any way we can bring any of that back? It, it would be obvious to say, you know, 
one misses this sense of community. But I think, as I've said, what I think is missing now is a sense of we can we can change this. We can do something about the situation because mm. it's still bad. I mean, we've got huge poverty in Glasgow. I mean, a few years ago, it was something like one in three children in Glasgow living in mm -hmm. poverty. And this is, this is 2021. And it was just as bad in 1963. And it's not now in the Gorbals, but it's in other areas. It's in some of the, the peripheral housing schemes and places like that. So there's still a sense of, there's still a, there's still a failure to address the, the, the need to change things so that this endemic poverty, uh, endemic deprivation, endemic systemic unemployment is, is dealt with. And that's that sense of urgency and a determination to change things, I don't see it because we have been, mm -hmm. as it were, flattened. We've been flattened by um, the, the consumer society, the, the fragmented isolation that we all now live in with our television sets and our iPhones and our iPads. Um, and while we, we acknowledge the great value of these things and, and the great freedom that they give us in so many ways, we're, we're, we're separated, we're, we're isolated. And there's, no, there's not a same sense of, let's get together and really, really change things. I know that there have been hmm. initiatives taken here and there by the councils, by charities, by voluntary organizations, and you've got to admire them and salute them. But overall, I just feel that this sense of we can make a difference is missing. And that's, for me, right. what I would like to see come back. Thank you, John. Okay, at this point, I'm going to introduce our second guest, um, Stuart Baird who is the founder and the chair of the Glasgow Motorway Archive. And the Motorway Archive is the largest private collection of roads and transport records and photographs in Scotland. The scope of the project is to preserve, share, and understand these unique artifacts. The website outlines the planning, design, and construction of Scotland's post-war road system, shed shedding light on the social, economic, and environmental issues associated with their construction. The construction of an improved roadway system involved the demolition of entire areas of the city in the second half of the 20th century, and what are now considered controversial decisions were made in the name of progress. Stuart is a chartered civil engineer with a keen interest in the development of Scotland's post-war transport networks and Glasgow's engineering heritage. He founded the Glasgow Motorway Archive to ensure records relating to the city's unique urban motorway system be preserved for the future. The archive has since become the largest private collection of transportation records in Scotland. He has published papers on the history of Scotland's motorway system and takes part in academic lectures and other public events. So Stuart, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here, Stuart. So first question for you, how did the motorway archive start and where does the materials, you know, where, where do your photographs, all the information you have, where does it come from? Is it your own research or is it by public submission? How, how does it work? Yeah, well, it, 
kind of grew from my own personal interest in, in the motorway system. Um, as a child and, and living in the, the suburbs of Glasgow in the Lanarkshire area, whenever we would uh, go into the city centre or beyond, we would travel on this fascinating motorway system. And as a child, looking out of the window at some of these phenomenal structures, I remember being fascinated by it. And that kind of stuck with me and, and eventually sort of directed me into a career of, in civil engineering. Um, and it was only when I was actually studying for civil engineering that I really began to appreciate the, the scale of what Glasgow had achieved with its road system, particularly in comparison to elsewhere in the UK or even Europe. And, and that research that, that came off of the back of that led me to make contact with a number of the engineers and the planners and designers who were involved way back at that time. And, and as that appreciation of the, the sort of a unique nature of what we have uh, became a bit more understood... It was clear that there wasn't a lot of information available and, and as I tried to, to learn more about the system and, and learn about the history, you know, going to the Mitchell Library and other places, it was clear that there weren't many records available. And I and started to ask, why is that the case? And it turned out that, you know, large numbers of people, be it original private companies who were involved in the design or the construction, the, the records were simply thrown away because they weren't considered important, you know, because they were, they were late 20th century. And, and that really, really annoyed me. And, and, and really the archive grew from that, from my own uh, frustrations with that and trying to, to research for a project. And, uh, you know, thinking, no, we really should be keeping these records. You know, we keep old railway records and other transportation records. Why should these be any different? And the archive has grown from that. Now, as to where the records come from, uh, initially, it, it was mostly my own research. I was later joined by a number of uh, colleagues and, and friends who helped me with that. But latterly, the records have started to come from individuals who were involved, you know, retired engineers. Um, some of the companies who were involved, like Scott Wilson, Kirkpatrick and Partners, who were a key player in the design of the road system and the, the construction as well. They passed their archive to us uh, a couple of years ago. So nowadays, I'd say we mostly, we mostly get new records through donations. So we don't actually have to do much. People tend to find us now. <laughs> That's handy. Yeah. Um, so, so who would you say your audience is? And who are the people who are interested in the motorway archive? Who, who are these people who are kind of donating things to you? You know, it, it's a simple answer. Everyone. And, and I know that sounds, that sounds strange because you think, well, surely there can't be so much interest in motorways. But it would amaze you the interest that we get from across the population. Not just in Glasgow, not just from the city, not just from the outskirts, but across Scotland and indeed across the UK. And it's um, it's pretty clear that people focus on the social history aspect of it because you can't build a motorway in an urban location without there being some effect on the on the urban fabric and the people who live in the area. You know, so sure. I would say that the social history interest, of which there, there there is a real interest amongst younger people today, and learning about the past. That is a big part of it, and we have a quite a presence on social media. Um, you know, we have thousands, tens of thousands of followers across all our social media channels, and people come and they look specifically at the social history. But on top of that, we do also have a lot of contact with engineers, uh, people interested in engineering heritage, but also a lot of academics and students, particularly architecture students and young engineering students. You know, we get a lot of inquiries from the art school and we've, we've, we've worked with a lot of people from, from the art school because they're fascinated by some of the architectural decisions. Um, because the, the Glasgow Motorway System had a, a consulting architect, uh, Sir William Holford and Partners, involved as consulting architects on the entire plan. And, and nothing could be approved engineering-wise without their approval. 
So How fascinating. Yeah. I didn't know that. Do you think that's where the interest is? Do you think that's what the appeal is about the history of, of motorways in Glasgow? Yeah. There's a very different look to the motorways in Glasgow. It has an aesthetic that you don't see in the motorways in the cities elsewhere in Britain. You know, if you go to Birmingham, for example, or Leeds, if you look at the retaining walls or the, the concrete structures, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they all have a very bare finish. They're not particularly nice to look at. You come to Glasgow and you'll see that we have uh, sandstone-clad retaining walls to try and blend right. in with the landscape. Or when, in the Charing Cross area, you've got aggregate-finished wall panels and the like, mm -hmm. and you've got the uh, concrete uh, sets and, and, and cobblestones around the base of the lighting masts, you know, things like that. That was Holford's direct right, influence. Right. These are all unique touches yes. to, to, to Glasgow. Only, you can only see in Glasgow. It's quite, quite fascinating. Yes, that's right. And, and the motorway system in Glasgow, I mean, we have the most extensive urban motorway system of any city in the UK. Uh, some would say more than all the other UK cities combined. It depends how you do the calculation. But uh, <laughs> it's certainly... I did, did, not, did not know that. Yes. Okay, that's, that's, that's it, fascinating. It is certainly extensive, yeah. Okay, so given that's the case, how, how do you think the M8 transformed Glasgow and how do you think the city would have developed if the motorway had not been built? Yeah, it's an interesting question and one, one we are often asked. Now, you have to put yourself in the context of the time and, uh, and motor vehicle traffic was very much on the up at the time through the 1950s and through the 1960s in particular. In fact, even in the pre-war period, Glasgow had some ambitions to improve the road infrastructure. We're in a bit of a strange topographical situation with Glasgow as well because we're, there's hills in, on either side of the city. So everything mm. that's looking to go east to west or north to south basically has to go through the city to some degree. And historically, if you look back at some of the old roads like the E8 and the E74 and the E77, anything coming from elsewhere in Scotland basically converged in the city. And as motor traffic mm -hmm. increased... The corporation realised, you know, we have a significant amount of traffic coming through our area that actually has no business here because it's people going to Edinburgh, it's people going to Ayrshire and the like, and we really have to try and address that in some way. And that, that's really what led to the development of the of the, the urban motorway system. The ring road mm -hmm. is obviously the part that we focus on the most, the M8 through, through the city centre. But the wider plan attempted to, to address that issue across the entire conurbation by providing or, or designing in a series of radial routes and rings and, and the like to try and filter traffic, not just uh, regional and, and national traffic, but also local traffic. Because, as was mentioned earlier, the construction of the new satellite schemes and the development of the suburban areas, like uh, when thinking of like Newton Merns and, and Mulgai, as these places <clears throat> sought to enter the city for leisure purposes, recreation, they had to deal with that. The existing Victorian streets just were not capable of dealing with the levels of traffic that were predicted. Okay, I can I can appreciate all of that, but then the flip side to that is that in terms of you know the, the population in Glasgow and the actual level of car ownership, it was incredibly low. So it may have been the case that the wealthy suburbs had access yes. to cars and mobility like that, but the, the, the people within the city did not. But the corporation appreciated that the people in those wealthy suburbs were the people they wanted to come and work in the city centre and spend in right. the city centre. And there was no out-of-town shopping centres in those days. You know, Glasgow was the retail hub for the west of Scotland. And, uh, you know, the, the on-street parking situation and, and the roads and approaching the city, like the A8 through Alexandra Parade and the like, you know, between commuter traffic, uh, people coming for leisure purposes, even the movement of goods, which was increasingly coming off the railways. The corporation knew that if it wanted to thrive in the, as a city, and indeed as the uh, 
historic industries were in decline and they were looking to move forward into new service industries and the like. And, and retail and, and leisure were a big part of that. They knew they had to make this access as, as easy for people as possible. Otherwise, they wouldn't come. You know, so yeah, mm-hmm. we do take the point that Glasgow even now has a very low car yes, ownership yeah, figure. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't necessarily trying to cater for those people. Right, okay. And that's In- why, interesting, yeah, that. and the transport policies of the time, if you look at some of the plans, they are very balanced against public transport options. And particularly the Greater Glasgow Transportation Study that came along in the mid-60s that, that looked at motorway construction, but it also balanced mm-hmm. that against public transportation because it was known that within the city itself that public transport had a keen role to play. And that's where projects like the reopening of the Argyle Line, for example, that yes. came directly yeah, yeah. from... You yep. know, that study. And they, they balanced it cost-wise against private transportation. You know, so there were some motorway schemes that didn't proceed immediately because they favoured the public transport equivalent. So their guile line went ahead right. ahead of some of the, the radio motorways, for example. You see, I hadn't appreciated that this was part of a kind of multi-layered oh, yes. transport strategy for the whole city. So that, that was really interesting discovering yes. that. Yes, and it remains the largest single transportation study ever undertaken in Scotland. Even to this right. day, they had something. They had something like two hundred staff working in an mm-hmm. office in Queen Street, and they had people who would go to people's houses and conduct interviews and ask them mm-hmm. how they travelled, what what modes did they use, how did they see themselves travelling in ten years. They would go to workplaces. They would do roadside interviews. You know, they would interview people in the train station. You know, and it was a fascinating process. And all in the days before computers, so all that data was analysed by people and brought together manually by people and calculated and worked into a plan that was to try and determine a way forward for transportation across the whole conurbation for a period of 40 years. Right. Why was the the actual route of the M8 um, and the ring road, I mean, okay, only half of it got built in the end, mm-hmm. but why was it so tight around the city centre? What was the reason for that? There's two, there's two reasons. Uh, one of them is a traffic reason. Uh, and they wanted a bypass of the city centre. They also wanted a distributor road. And the further away from the city centre that that ring road would be, the less benefit the city centre would get from it. So if they built it two, three miles out, say, Argyle Street, Sucky Hall Street, they would not benefit to the same extent because people would need to finish their journeys on surface streets to get to the city centre. So thinking of Alexandra Parade or Great Western Road, for example, had they gone Mm -hmm. much further beyond them, those routes really wouldn't have benefited too much because people would still have had to use them to an extent to get to the city centre. The other reason really comes down to the comprehensive development areas that we discussed earlier. Yes. Because the the fact that the corporation intended to clear all, almost all property within the boundaries of these areas, that allowed for a new look at the transportation options within those areas. So thinking of Anderston or Townhead, for example, it would have been very difficult to construct a road or a motorway in that area, you know, historically, when you look at the dense population there and, and, and the number of buildings there. But when you're looking to clear all this property from an area, it almost provides a blank canvas. And they were able to say, OK, we can assume that Anderson Townhead Cow Gardens are going to be completely empty. We need you to squeeze the road through there because we don't want to build it in the areas adjacent to that. So, for example, Park Circus, for example, would never they would never have contemplated a road through there. Or likewise, Garnet Hill. Um, but in areas of St George's Cross and Anderson to the south, they knew they were going to clear it. So the engineers were tasked with squeezing the road through these areas. And, you know, even the, the parts of the system that weren't built, thinking of the east flank of the inner ring road through Glasgow Green and the like, there were even CDAs for High Street, 
you know, they, they envisaged that all the area around about the toll, for example, was going to be cleared away. So it was going to be very easy for them to squeeze this road through. You know, so the engineers were told they would have this nice blank canvas to work from. And that's kind of what drove the development of the, the inner ring road in particular. Yes, I remember being told a joke by an architectural historian, um, which was that, um, okay, the um, cathedral was going to be isolated on the other side of, uh, of the road, but it was okay because the road would be getting built on um, Gothic arches to make it blend in. That, that, so that, yeah. was, that, was, that was the joke at the time. That, that was one, one of Holford's uh, and Associates' many ways to try and mitigate against the effect. Ultimately, I think they decided they had actually to, to put the motorway in a tunnel in front of the cathedral from the from the Royal Infirmary right down to Glasgow Green or the Goodyard um, was going to be in tunnel in the end up because they were conscious, you know, it is one thing that it does frustrate us a little bit as an organisation as we try and, and, and explain the history behind these things. They were very conscious of the effect that these roadways were going to have on the surroundings and in the mm. city. And that's why Holford was there. That's why others were, there, others were there, and that's why, that you know, there was a lot of discussion about how the motorway could fit in, and a lot of what was built was built at considerable additional expense to try and mitigate against the effect of its construction. You know, thinking of Charing Cross, where there is that canyon, you know, in front of the Mitchell Library, where the motorway is below ground level. All the interchanges have to be two level, and the upper level is at the level of the ground, existing ground level prior to the motorway. Yes. You know, so yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was things like that that they didn't want to dominate the landscape. And they also realised in, in the report that, you, again, you mentioned earlier that some of the missions that there were to Detroit and other cities in America. Mm -hmm. One mm -hmm. thing that always caught my eye in that report was when the, the provost wrote the line that she realised that, that Glasgow could never have a freeway system on the scale of a, an American city because Glasgow had a historic centre and it had historic buildings that you couldn't clear away. They were never going to design a motorway that could, you know, take unconstrained growth of traffic. There was always going to be a limitation on the amount of traffic that it would handle. And that's why they settled on a 30-year period for 1990 and said, you know, we'll build a system to take that, but no more. So they never envisaged, for example, that, uh, they, that Charing Cross would ever have to be widened, for example. Yes, they knew they were clearing an area, they were putting that in, but it was made very clear that that would be the extent of it. It would never be anything more than that. And, and that's why they were able to plan some of the aesthetic you know, choices around that and develop adjacent to the motorway because they knew that this was it. It wasn't going to get any bigger in scale. Fascinating. It's interesting because kind of the, the where you can cross on the pedestrian bridges over the section at Kinning Park, kind of between Kinning Park and the industrial estate yeah. just to the north of Pollock Shields, mm -hmm. you really appreciate that point, the width of the motorway. Yeah. And it does have a real American freeway oh, yeah. feel mm -hmm. to it mm -hmm. at that point, which is quite fascinating. That was the queer American influence. Uh, John Cullen, who was one of the one of the architects of the, uh, of the system, the tra traffic engineer, grew up in very poor conditions in St. George's Cross. He, he was... Um, very lucky. He managed to get a scholarship and, and was able to, to go to night school and learn civil engineering. And he eventually ended up in America and worked on the design of a number of freeway systems in, in the States and gained this experience that no one in the UK had. And then when he then heard about Cumbernauld Newtown and, and the Glasgow plans that were coming, he felt that it was his duty to return to Glasgow 
as, as, a, as a child of Glasgow with this knowledge, this unique experience, and actually helped to develop Glasgow's road system because he, having grown up in the conditions that, that he grew up in, similar to no doubt what some people in Gorbals grew up with, he was determined to try and work with the city to try and drive it forward. And that was very much reaching for the future in his eyes. And that American practice, because we had no UK design standards for urban motorways at that time, his American experience and, and a couple of his colleagues who'd also worked abroad, that filtered into Glasgow's plans directly, which is why it looks so different. Yes, very much. Okay, turning to some of the kind of major artefacts you know, that are part of that motorway network. Last, last year, um, Historic Environment Scotland awarded the Kingston Bridge a C listing um, for its special architectural and historic interest. And that was quite a controversial decision. So I'll, I'll read a bit out from the, uh, the, the, the when they made this announcement, um, which was that through listing, the bridge has been recognised as a significant, albeit controversial, infrastructure project which was trans which transformed the city of Glasgow. Forming part of the M8, Scotland's first motorway, its construction reflected the social and economic changes taking place in Glasgow's in sorry in Scotland cities in the mid-20th century as private car ownership rapidly rose. What became clear through the consultation is that people feel very strongly about the decision to list the Kingston Bridge, and a number of issues were raged were raised, ranging from the concerns that this would mean the bridge must always remain a motorway, and the climate change impacts of this, to worries that recognising the bridge in this way was insensitive to the effects its construction had on the communities directly affected. What is your opinion? on these issues raised by the public. It won't surprise you to, to hear that we were very disappointed by by that reaction. And I think people people have perhaps been a bit short-sighted. And I think we're in, we're in danger of repeating some of the, the mistakes of the past because 50, 60 years ago, we were tearing down lovely Victorian buildings and Georgian buildings without any thought about what how they had been built or what they, how they might be considered in the future. And the Kingston Bridge is a stunning example of, of its type of structure, designed by a Scotsman, uh, William Fairhurst. Um, you know, famous, famous design, uh, unique in many, many ways. And, and, and I felt that by people saying, no, we shouldn't list that, I think that was sending the wrong message. Because yes, there's a motorway on top of that structure at the moment. That doesn't need to be in 10 years or 20 years. It could be a it could be turned into a walkway. It could be turned into a, tra a trans public transport hub. It wasn't so much about the the motorway. It was about the bridge itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Look at the railway infrastructure, and there there's you know there is a lot of surviving unused um, railway infrastructure in Glasgow. And let's say look at what's happened in in New York with the High Line. I mean, okay, New York's obviously got a different level of density. Um, but you could do similar things with, say, the, the City Union line. You could have part of that used as, as, a, as a walking route through the city. So there are other things you can put these huge pieces of infrastructure to. They don't just have to sit around doing nothing. They could still be of, a, of, of public benefit to the city yeah. in some way. That, that's, that's absolutely right. You know, as I say, and as, as the focus shifts in transport, you know, changes as it always does, and and, and hab, you know, people's habits change, and if we're working from home more and the like, there is also you know always the possibility that the, the need for the motorway there may not be required anymore. And and as you see, there, there are many other things that that structure could be used for. And, and people mention the uh, you know the climate change implications and the pollution from that. But think of the carbon that would be expended by demolishing a bridge of that size and that scale. You know, we, we shouldn't be throwing things away. We should be looking to reuse. And that disappointed me. I think people missed the point of the listing. It wasn't about recognising the motorway. It was about recognising the unique architectural features and technological fact, you know, features of the bridge itself. 
Uh, and you know, so we were disappointed, I must say. Um, but I was glad that it got over the line in the end. Okay, right. Well, to lighten things up a bit, <laughs> what what is your favourite fun fact or interesting or unusual story about the motorway? There are so many, but the one that I always focus on is the overhead signage. So the overhead sign gantries that you see above the M8, they're unique. You won't see them anywhere else in Britain. You won't see them anywhere else in the world. They were designed by Halfords in, in uh, collaboration with one of the consulting engineers on the original scheme so that we would have overhead signage and lane signal control, but in a way that was not too visually obtrusive. So they're all very slender. They're all very light in colour. And they were designed to blend in because they appreciated, well, we're not going to use these large, huge stacked signs that they're using on the M6 in Birmingham or on the M4 in London. We want something that looks a bit prettier. And that was why they, they adopted this internally illuminated sign box. And there's over 200 of them still exist to this day. But the first of them were constructed as part of the inner ring road. And a very minimalist very much of their time, but they still function very well today. And as I say, they're, 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 they're a stunning example of a unique Glasgow motorway feature that you won't see anywhere else. Fascinating. Okay, I'm going to bring John back in now, and we're going to ask both of you, and this is the question we ask all of our guests, and it's a completely loaded question, so we are really interested to hear your <laughs> response to this. And this is, what is your favourite building, it can be a motorway if you want, in Glasgow, and what would it tell you if its walls could talk? So, John, do you want to go first? Okay, Neil, I'm happy to do that. Um, and I must say, I've been fascinated to listen to what Stuart's been saying. My favourite building in Glasgow is the Pierce Institute in Govan, the PI. Ah, right. Um, mm -hmm. Built in the 19th, early, early 20th century as a kind of community hall for the people of Govan. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And it's favourite for me for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, I worked there as a student in the 1960s, as a student minister in the 1960s. I was the um, minister of the church in the 1980s, which was responsible for the building. I had to raise a million pounds with other people to keep it going in the 1980s. Um, and I'm still involved with it as a friend of the PI. But more importantly, my wife um, owes her very existence to the PI because her parents met there when they were working with George MacLeod in the 1930s. So she was brought up with the story of the PI. Um, and when she was working with a charity called Glasgow Brendam Link, to work alongside families living in poverty. She had an office there and worked there for many years. So for me, I call the PI my, my very own dear building. And if it could speak, it would say to me, thank you to everybody for keeping me alive. Because if the council had got their hands on me, they'd have pulled me down. <laughs> Oh, it's a magnificent building. I love the PI. It's fabulous. Stuart, over to you. It, it might not surprise you that I'm going to choose a late 20th century building, uh, given <laughs> that's my, my main field of interest. Uh, and I, I actually have chosen Elmbank Gardens, also known as the Charing Cross Tower. Uh, mm, Seifert, interesting yeah, choice. One of Seifert's designs, uh, part of a much 
original uh, sort of a large plan for that Charing Cross area that never really came to anything in the end. But I think it just stands there as a as a stunning monument to that very optimistic time that the city came through in the 60s in particular, uh, reaching to the future with all these new modern buildings and saying, this is the Glasgow of the future. We've got tall buildings now. We can have office blocks that are on a similar scale to New York and in other cities. And we're going to do it in style and we're going to involve architects that have a, a, a really, you know, international reputation or whatever and it's just it's one of those ones for me that's always stood out and again it overlooks the motorway so it all comes kind of hand in hand you know just the way it stands there at Charing Cross and when you look across the road and you see the stunning Mitchell Library it's just it's it's such a comparison to make on the left you've got this late 20th century uh, building and on on the other side you've got the 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 iconic Mitchell Library it's just it's they just stand out so well together for me if it could talk my goodness, what would it tell me? I think it would probably, again, like, like John said, it probably feels it's still lucky to be there because so many buildings of its type and from its era are being pulled down and, and thrown away in favour of new horrible. Yeah, I, think, I think you're right. I think things. I've seen at least at least three schemes yeah. for uh, for its redevelopment, yeah. which have never come to anything. No, so I'm so, grateful but it's, still. It's an interesting little complex. It is a lovely complex. And the fact that the railway station is incorporated within it mm. as well, it's all mm-hmm. part of that 60s idea. Let's combine it and bring it all together, make it very easy to get in and out of and it's it's a decent hotel to be in as well with great views across the city Mm -hmm. very much good 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 well listen thank you very much to both of you that was an absolute pleasure john and absolute pleasure Stuart, as well to very kind of different perspectives of of what has happened you know since the mid-20th century in, in glasgow and it's very very much appreciated an absolute pleasure speaking to you both so also to our audience if you enjoyed this um please subscribe and share, and don't forget to follow with the hashtag If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk. Thank you very much. The following message was submitted by a member of the public. If you want to leave a message about your opinions, memories, and thoughts about Glasgow's historic built environment, have a look at our website to find out how. My great-grandparents were rehomed after their tenement was flattened in World War II. Their entire street is long gone. We recently found their insurance document where they claimed for a floor covering and blanket for their baby. It was heartbreaking. Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust. This podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tanex.